This morning's scriptures come from the book of Ezra, chapter 1, 1 through 5. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem, in Judea. Any of his people, oh, excuse me, any of his people among you may go up to the temple in Jerusalem, in Judah, and build the temple of their God, the Lord, in Israel. The God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any lo locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and uh, and goods to, to the people to provide um, them with, sorry, I can't have seen my glasses, with silver and gold among them, with goods and livestock and the free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Just the word of the Lord. Okay, thank you. All right, welcome everyone. Um, my name is Brody. If I don't know you, it's uh, wonderful to see you. I hope to um, meet you and meet you and chat with you later. Um, so uh, you may notice that I am not our usual uh, head pastor. Our usual pastor, Pastor Chris, is out for the summer. He has decided, I think he told me to take some time off, and um, he's trying to break the record for the world's smallest pizza. But all he's done so far is microwave some pizza bagels. So it might take a while, maybe nine weeks or so. Um, so, he's, so he's out, and you have me. Um, <laughs> So we're going to spend our summer in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, and, and uh, Gary just uh, spoke the, the, the beginning words of the book of Ezra, and so here, here we have it. Here we go. The people of God are setting off on their unexpected journey. Um, in our series this summer, we will witness the process of God's family, Israel, scattered and regathered building God's city together. God's city must be built in the middle of turmoil, in the middle of raging empires, in the middle of conquest and oppression. This is a process that God is calling God's people into for all of history, building God's city in the midst of raging empire and turmoil and chaos. This process begins with a simple phrase spoken by a very unlikely source, the conquering king himself, King Cyrus. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven. This is how he begins this edict. The Lord, the God of heaven. And that is where our journey begins. God, the God we worship, the God we are made by, the God that we owe our existence to is the God of heaven. And before we begin the process of trying to build the city of heaven here on earth, we will need to know what sort of heaven God is the God of. Getting to know this God and getting to know this heaven is the first and really the final lesson in our series on Ezra and Nehemiah. 
How do we come to know God's heaven and heaven's God? And what would she what would what should we do to bring it to bear? How do we know God and the heaven God is building and and what should we do to bring it to bear? Setting out to build the city of God without a ready ear to hear both the voice of God and the voice of the people that God loves will lead to a city that is not the city of God, but is just Babylon by another name. You might be wondering at this point, why Ezra? Why Ezra Nehemiah? And why now? Ezra Nehemiah are one book in the original Hebrew scriptures. Um, They work together as two pieces of a whole. Um, And these are not the most popular books for Christian preachers. Um, If you grew up in a denomination that uses the Revised Common Lectionary, um, then you would hear this passages from these books nine times across three years. So a three-year cycle, you would only hear nine little sections of, of these books. And that's if the pastor got around to get into the Old Testament readings. Usually they kind of camp out in the Gospels, <laughs> which we love the Gospels. But these are not the most popular books. Um, th- these books they're kind of difficult to wrap your head around. They're, they're difficult to seek, sink your teeth into. Um, there's no grand gestures of God. There's no pillars of cloud and fire, no confrontational prophets. But there is a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of appeals and court proceedings and you know uh, decisions from kings. Um, there's a lot of trying our best and getting it wrong. There's a lot of trust. And there's a lot of good, slow work. This Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. That's why we have the beautiful red, um, I want to say tablecloth, but that doesn't sound liturgical enough. Someone, someone, one of our Duke Div folks probably knows like the word for that. (laughs) And this is normally the Sunday when the church celebrates the outpouring of God's spirit in marvelous and wonderful ways. This is the Sunday when we celebrate the God of heaven, indwelling human hearts and transforming communities. This is when we remember that the Spirit is with us, moving in and among us in incredible ways. Christ has ascended in body, and now his body is right here. But as we learned from Justin's sermon a few weeks ago, we must not forget where Pentecost happens. It happens, as Justin said um, two weeks ago, on the fringes. It happens among the beaten down and left behind. It happens among some poor and ill-equipped Galileans gathering around a table to figure out what's next. These are people overcome by power that they don't understand and cannot claim for themselves. That's where Pentecost happens. Pentecost is the future, the city of God, finding its way into the present, in the mouths and hearts of God's people. And Pentecost and the church calendar launches us into ordinary time. And Pentecost represents this future of God and the present of the world, marked by sin and chaos and and hardship, clashing into one another. When we set out to build the city of God from the ashes of empire, as the Israelites will do in Ezra Nehemiah, we are joining the future as it tries to break through into the present. 
The future is the realm of the city of God, where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, and the present is the realm of the city of humanity, where chaos and sin seem to reign unopposed. This distinction, the city of God and the city of humanity, is, is been spelled out by church leaders all the way back to um, St. Augustine. These realities crash head on in the work of God in history. God's people live perpetually at the intersection of present and future. And sometimes the line between the two is blurry. As we will discover through these books, finding where the future is breaking into the present, or in other words, finding God's will among the empires of a fallen world is a messy process and it's easy to get it wrong. Let me share a little bit about the messy process that Israel found themselves in. So we're going to go into a little bit of history. Just stay with me. So the story of the Old Testament is the story of bringing God's people home. In the book of Samuel and Kings, we finally see the Israelites enter their land and establish an independent kingdom, no longer overruled by Egyptians no longer battling for space against the Philistines. They have their own land and an independent kingdom. This is what was promised by God. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah pick up the story of God's family after a long period of exile from that land that God had promised them. In the year 721, northern Israel, so Israel had had a civil war and broke into north and south. Northern Israel fell to the Assyrian Empire, and many people were taken into exile in Assyria. And then in 609, uh, the Assyrian Empire falls to Babylon. And then in 587, the southern part of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, uh, is taken by siege and exiled into Babylon. And the, the grand Jerusalem temple that was built by Solomon and, and is like kind of the apple of Israel's eye is burned and destroyed. And then in 539 BC, Babylon falls to Persia. So here we go, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. The Israelites are stuck in this perpetual yo-yo of oppressive nations. And it seems the only thing that they can depend on is that nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And so here we are. It's 539 BC, and there's a new sheriff in town, King Cyrus. He comes to power. He takes a look around, and he realizes that his cities are full of foreigners conquered under Babylon. And maybe he figures, what's the use of having them around? using up resources, when they could be off in their own country paying tribute to me. They could be providing resources instead of using them up. Whatever his motivation, he deems that it's a better strategic choice for them to leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem. Now, this, this is Cyrus just doing what kings do. He's making a strategic choice for the power of his empire. Right? This is what every king has done for all of time. But notice how scripture talks about it. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. Clearly, the biblical author wants us to find, hidden within these strategies of empire and this yo-yo of kingdoms, wants us to find the future 
mysteriously breaking into the present. Wants us to find the hand of God bringing about something new, something other than kingdom raging against kingdom. Cyrus was just doing what kings do, and yet somehow, in ways we cannot presume to understand, God was at work. Recognizing God at work, despite the confidence of this passage, will prove to be more difficult than expected for us and for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Across the centuries, from before the exile of northern Israel under Assyria, all the way to adapting to life in Babylon, the Israelites relied on the prophets to speak on behalf of God and make the will of God clear. And these prophets, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they pointed the way to the future. They showed where the city of God, where the future of God, where Pentecost was breaking into the present. But the leaders that we will see in these chapters in Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So, so these books will follow three leaders, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. None of these are prophets. They're priests, they're statesmen, they're governors, leaders, pastors, and, 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 and they must rely on the books of Israelite tradition and on their own intuition and their own knowledge of God and the nature of God to try to figure out what God's will is. The prophets across these books are silent. And this really is the first time in the history of God's people that, that the prophets have been silent. So how do you build the city of God when you're only pretty sure you know what God's will is? I don't know the answer to that question. What I do know is that the building of God's city is an inefficient, complicated, and messy process. We have our first example of this here in Ezra chapter 1. It says that everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Notice it's not everyone. Not everybody gets up and abandons everything and goes to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. A lot of Israelites were actually very reluctant to leave the city. Why? Because they had listened to the voice of the prophets. See, when they were taken into exile, not 50 years ago, they were taken into exile. Jeremiah told them, this is from Jeremiah 29, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too can have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This was the word of the Lord. So they built their gardens. They married. They sought the shalom, the peace of their city. And now we're being told to pack it all up and leave. Why? Was it, was it a voice of a prophet commanding the will of God? Not really. It's what the king wants. Right? That's what the king who ruled over their oppressive nation is telling them to do. Saying that he's moved by God. So lots of people didn't go, at least not at first. But somehow, mysteriously and powerfully, God was also moving 
in the hearts of the families, the priests, and the Levites, and the future began to break through. Now, we, we cannot put the blame on the Israelites who didn't tag along. That's the wrong lesson to learn here. It's really hard to tell the difference between God moving in the world and empire just doing what empire does. It's easy to miss the movement of God in our hearts. We've been conditioned, all of us, by our contexts to feel right and wrong about certain things. Right? A personally beneficial financial choice might just feel right. It might feel so right in your heart. Returning to a harmful relationship that has been manipulative to you might feel so right in your heart. It all depends on how you've been shaped by all the forces around you, by history, by relationships, by context, by sin, by darkness, by light. I mean, all of, all of the things that surround us in our context shape us and shape how our heart responds to things. And so the movement of God will also feel right. And so where do you find that line? How do you know when something feels right because the world has taught you that it is right? And how, does, how do you know when something feels right because God is moving in your heart? This can be really, really hard, and this can go really, really wrong. James Baldwin wrote that people are trapped in history, and history is trapped in them. And he goes on after that to tell this haunting story of how everyday people responding to what they think is the movement of God in their hearts can do serious harm. He says, there is a custom in a tiny Swiss village. I'm told it is repeated in many villages of buying African natives for the purpose of converting them to Christianity. There stands in the church all year round a small box with a slot for money decorated with a black figurine. And into this box, the villagers drop their francs and during the carnival which precedes Lent, two village children have their faces blackened, and they solicit among the villagers for money for the missionaries in Africa. Between the box in the church and the blackened children, this village bought last year six or eight African natives. This was reported to me with pride by the wife of one of the bistro owners, and I was careful to express astonishment and pleasure at the solicitude shown by the villagers for the souls of black folks. The bistro owner's wife beamed with a pleasure far more genuine than my own and seemed to feel that I might now breathe more easily concerning the souls of at least six of my kinsmen. These Swiss villagers, buying human beings to coercively convert them, probably felt so right in their hearts. These are probably well-intentioned people doing the best that they can, doing what they think God's will is. But history has shaped them to believe that God's will is something utterly opposed to God's will. Right? These are people who thought they knew what God wanted them to do, and, and they were wrong. They didn't know they were wrong. They probably went to their graves not knowing that they were wrong. There are lots of things that we will be wrong about. And we will all go to our graves with countless examples of how we had good intentions 
how we tried our best and missed the movement of God. So if we read these passages and say, why didn't they go? Obviously, this is God's will. That's the wrong lesson to take here. The only answer is to keep listening. Keep asking questions. The work of God is slow and patient. It requires enough humility to look for the ways that you get it wrong and change, even if it costs you greatly. Right? We're all worried about our sunk costs. If you've spent your life giving yourself to one thing, it may be too hard to recognize that that one thing is not God's will. And, and so your only option is to double down. But Christian humility requires continually returning to the source of the knowledge of God. Scripture, tradition, experience, reason, and I would add the voice of the vulnerable. The only answer is to keep listening. Even if you can't imagine life outside of Babylon, God is holding out an open hand, inviting you to join the building of God's city. The work will be slow and patient. Last week, Pastor Chris quoted Kasuki Koyama, who said that God moves at three miles an hour because God walks with you. It's slow and it's messy. It involves a lot of course correction, a lot of doubling back. And yet slow work, this is important, is never no work. In the Mishnah, which is, which is a, a tradition of ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, Rabbi Tarfan writes, It is not incumbent upon you to finish the work, but nor are you free to desist from it. This is the story of Ezra Nehemiah. God is calling us out into something new, and it is not incumbent upon you to finish it, but nor are you free to desist from it. It was to people very much like us, well-intended Christian folk, that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote the words, For years now I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with a piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. It has been a tranquilizing thalidomide, relieving the emotional stress for a moment, only to give birth to an ill-formed infant of frustration. We must come to see with the distinguished jurist of yesterday that justice too long delayed is justice denied. The slow work of God is never the work of denying justice by always saying wait. So the work will be slow, and it is not incumbent on us to finish it, but nor are we free to desist from it. Building the city of God will be slow. You're not expected to do it all, and you're certainly not expected to do it alone. But just because we cannot see it through to the end doesn't give us an excuse to lay down our bricks and walk away. The city of God is a city of love. God is love. It's a city of healing. For Christ is the healer. It's a city of justice, for God is just. In building this city, you will always feel like a beginner. You will not have the confidence or the certainty of a Cyrus. Rather, like the feeble Israelites trying to find the will of God among the turmoil of empire, you will be constantly listening, desperately listening to the call of God 
to discover if and how God is moving in your heart. And so I invite you to be patient with yourself. As we heard last week, and as it says on the front of our building now, above all, trust in the slow work of God. This is a line from a longer poem by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Chardin? I don't know. The full version of the poem, I want to read it in full. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time, that is to say grace and circumstances acting on your goodwill, will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. I'm really thrilled to be exploring these books with all of you. These books are complicated and challenging. There are so many things in this book that if I wrote them, I probably wouldn't have included. There are so many things that confuse me, that, that, that complicate things. But they are so beautiful because they help us make sense of the complicated world that we find ourselves in, in the midst of turmoil and chaos, while the future is also trying to break through by the grace of God. Throughout these series, we'll see our protagonists build a temple and then mourn that the temple isn't good enough, worship and then forget to worship, marry and then divorce, exclude people and then embrace people, and generally fumble their way through the building of a city of God. Through this series, we'll have the honor of hearing from lots of incredible guest preachers. Sabrina Chan is joining us next week. Um, we'll also hear from some incredible folks from Duke Divinity School and from um, some various ministries. Um, yeah, more news to come on all of that. I am really, really thankful to all of you for your prayers and intrigue during this season. I believe that God is doing some good slow work right here, and I invite you to join it. We pray with me? God of heaven, we pray that you will open our eyes to what heaven is really like. We pray that you will train us to see heaven when it breaks through into earth. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will tune our ears to listen to your voice and to the people that you love. In Jesus' name, amen.